Good morning, everybody. So we're finally getting into the seven churches. And this morning, we're going to look at the first church, and it's the church of Ephesus. I'm just going to read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. That's Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I'll read it from the NLT. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. We're going to look at this format in all the seven churches. Jesus is speaking to each church and first he gives a commendation and recognizes and acknowledges what they've been doing. And then in most of the churches, five of the seven, he actually has a concern or a complaint or a criticism about what's going on in that church. And then finally, he gives a correction. Something that we need to adjust, an attitude, a behavior that needs to be adjusted in order to maintain the testimony of the church. And so, we are looking at the church of Ephesus. And before we start, I want to talk to you a little bit about what the church had to go through, the environment the church was in during that time when John was writing this letter to them. First of all, I want to say that Ephesus at that time was a commercial and export center. So there were three great trade routes converging to this city. And so everyone came to do business in Ephesus. So it was a real business center. It was a hub to make money. If you wanted to make money, go to Ephesus. That's where you build your wealth. And so you can see that it would create this mindset of how to get richer, how to gain wealth. And so that was uh, what was going on there. There was this deceitfulness of riches. Why do I call it the deceitfulness of riches? I'm not the one who said that. Jesus said that. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, when he's uh, using the parable of the sower, he talks about one of these conditions of the heart. And he says, he who hears the word and then the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And so Jesus recognized that the wealth, nothing wrong with wealth and riches, but we need to recognize there's a deceptiveness in wealth and riches. I once read an article and I thought it was quite humorous. It was um, an article about J.D. Rockefeller. And during his time, it is said that his net worth was 1% of the entire U.S. economy. Can you imagine how rich that is? I can't even fathom that. 1% of the entire U.S. economy was his net worth. And so a journalist asked him, 
How much is enough? And J.D. Rockefeller said, just a little bit more. I thought to myself as a young kid, man, this guy doesn't know when it's enough. Then I started growing up and entering into this world. And Rina and I got married. And we had this small little Mini Cooper. We loved our little Mini Cooper until it started breaking down a lot. Every time it rains, it gets wet, and we'll have water coming into our car. And we thought to ourselves, if only we had a better car. Just a little bit more. And so, by God's grace, we managed to get a nice little two-door Honda. And we were so happy with that. Nice red Honda. And we were just loving it. Then our firstborn came. It's hard to put the bassinet into a two-door car. Oh, if I only had a four-door car. Just a little bit more. Then it became difficult to share a house um, we were renting a house with another family. And you know, with a child, and it just starts getting a little bit difficult. If only we had a place for ourselves. Just a little bit more. And we were able to get this apartment five stories high. And all oh, carrying the baby and the stuff that you have to carry, five floors of steps. Oh, if only we had a house that was on the ground floor that we could rent. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more just a little bit more. My last rental property, we were to rent, I just said to the Lord, Lord, it would be so lovely for us to live by the beach. And we are in Papamoa. <laughs> just a little bit more. You know? <laughs> I'm not so critical about J.D. Rockefeller anymore. But I tell you what, it is deceptive, isn't it? it? It's never enough. And so the church in Ephesus was situated in this place where wealth was the main focus. And they had to navigate through that as well as a church. The church in Ephesus had to deal with this choking environment of just a little bit more. Then there was the corruption of religion. In that city was the temple of Artemis, which is actually um, in Latin Diana, so the temple of Diana, you know? And this was a massive structure. In fact, it is the seven wonders of the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was such a massive structure that it was an attraction, tourist attraction. People would come to visit this temple. And so it became also a great way to make some money. And so uh, gathered there were those who were silversmiths who would make these little trinkets and make these little statues of Diana and give her and sell it, you know, for a blessing, for fertility, for wealth, you know. So you had these little trinkets that you would buy and it was great to make money. And if you look at during Paul's time as he was preaching the gospel and people were turning in droves to the church, there was a riot that happened because of this fact that the, the, those who were trading in the temple were concerned they were going to lose their wealth. So the, Ephesus, the church in Ephesus had to fight the temptation of commercial, commercializing religion. You know, I tell you, sometimes I am concerned of our direction we are making as a, as, as a church, global church, 
you know, where we tend to sometimes commercialize. There is a trade-off. Come to church. We give you all the services you need. We'll put up a nice, nice little presentation for you. You get your Sunday fix, and then you go home. Maybe we'll we'll have a well. We don't have that here. We don't have a band for you. We don't have a we don't do any circus stunts here. So we do apologize for that. And I am concerned how we sometimes commercialize the gospel, you know, and how tithing sometimes becomes about the church, about the payment for the pastor, and not about you and your your covenant relationship with the Lord. Don't worry about the pastor; he doesn't look like he's starving. But do be concerned about your connection with God, and everything we do. Has to be in a relationship with God, whether it's your tithing and your offerings, you're offering it to the Lord. Your worship is unto the Lord. Everything we do on a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday has to be about Him. That's the real, true religion. So the church was fighting this commercialized religion all around them. Finally, they also. Was struggling and warring against the influence of false teachers among them. Now, thirty years before, Paul already warned the church in Ephesus. We see it in Acts chapter twenty, verse twenty-nine to thirty, where Paul gathered the elders and he said to them, "I know this: after my de- departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock." Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And that's exactly what happened. There was this gathering of false teachers who started teaching and corrupting the word of God for their own gain. And so, the church in Ephesus had to be mature enough, discerning enough, to know the difference between God's word and man's opinions of God's word. There's a difference, God's word, and man's opinion of God's word. How do you know the difference? Does the message draw you closer to Christ, or does the message require you to pay allegiance to the messenger? So they were drawing people unto themselves. So this was what they were struggling with, and these were the challenges that the church in Ephesus had. Not very different from us and the world we live in today. So let's look at the commendation that Jesus gave to this church, and it's basically this: You have been zealous in defending the truth, and he says this in verse two to three. I know your works, your labor, your patience; that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. You have found them to be liars, and you have persevered and have patience, have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So that was the commendation. God, Jesus recognized that that they were zealously defending the truth. Look at the words; they were hard at work at it. They were enduring it patiently. They didn't tolerate any evil, and they weren't becoming weary about it. And they tested so-called apostles. I want to say this before we move on: there is a need for us to test the word. There is a need for us to test what people are saying to us. We are blessed. You can turn on the TV, and you have many preachers, far better than the one standing right in front of you. 
and you, you, you go onto the internet, you've got so many. We live in a world where there is no drought of preachers and teachers. How do you know who's right, who's wrong? The call is to test. So let me tell you this. Firstly, test the message. We are always told to test the message. I want to tell you about the Berean way of doing it. That's in Acts chapter 17, verse 10 to 12. Acts 17, 10 to 12. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed and did many of the prominent Greek women and men. So the Bible calls them open-minded. In fact, the King James says noble. There was a nobility in them. What was the nobility? That they wouldn't just take what you and I say. They would go back to script. They were open to hear open to listen. They weren't suspicious or questioning when, when they were hearing the message, but then they didn't just accept it as it was. They went back, and doesn't matter if it's Paul the great apostle or Silas the great communicator, they would take the word, go back home day after day, search the scriptures, and see if what they were teaching aligned to the word of God. That's how we test the message. Does the message align to the word of God? If it aligns to the word of God, then it's our responsibility to align ourselves to it. But if the message does not align to the word of God, I take it as opinion. And I do not have need to follow that. Does it make sense? Test the message. But also, test the messenger. 1 John 3, 24 now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. How do you test the spirits of each one who is speaking? Check their lives. By their fruit you will know them. You can notice somebody who is abiding in Christ and who Christ is abiding in them. And I tell you this, you have every right if you notice something that in me that is not really very abiding in Christ. Be my friend and tell me. But we need to test our messengers. If we dare to come up here and stand and preach the word, we need to make sure we are living the word first. I'm not talking about being perfect. Because you are looking at a person and you know he's not perfect. If you don't know, talk to my wife. She won't tell you. It's not about perfection. It's about whether we are aligning ourselves. When God speaks, do we obey? And obedience can be seen by its fruit. I think too much today, we glorify the preachers... And even though we see things that are wrong in them, we do not challenge that. And that's why we are seeing men and women falling from all these high pedestals that we put them up. 
Don't do that. Let's walk among each other. And let's test the message and the messenger. So the church in Ephesus was commended for zealously defending the truth. Constantly testing, constantly checking. But there's a problem with that. When you're constantly looking out for error, constantly looking out whether the guy is right or wrong, you can be so suspicious, so questioning, that you end up full of zeal to defend the truth. And you get up, you have one problem, and Jesus criticized that. So let's look at what was the concern Jesus had for the church. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. In their whole zealousness to defend the truth, their zeal became unholy zeal. In their fight against error, they forgot that they started getting into error by leaving the first love. You know, it doesn't say losing your love. It uses the word leaving, left. And that's the Greek word, me, which means to send away. That means there was a deliberate decision to send away. I don't want anything to do with this type of love. And it means to be going away. In fact, it's the same word that you would use when a husband divorces his wife. In other words, Jesus was saying, in your zeal to pursue truth, in your zeal to expose error, you have divorced your zeal from love. And that has made it unholy. In their zeal to fight against deception, they abandoned love. You know, I used to be quite fond of this phrase somebody coined, love the sinner and hate the sin. You know, I thought it was quite a, quite a good way of do, looking at it. These days, I'm not a big fan of that phrase anymore. And I'll tell you why. Love and hate cannot abide together. It's like water and oil. The chances are, as we start saying love the sinner, hate the sin, you end up hating the sin so much, you don't realize it, but in your languaging to hate the sin, you end up hating the sinner. And that has been my concern. And my concern is, I look at the global church, and I see my brothers and sisters, and some of them who stand up for things that they are hating, but you hear the language of hatred coming out. You look at some of the billboards they stand in, and you see, where is Christ in this? Because we end up not just hating the sin, but hating the sinner. Because you end up divorcing love from your zeal. I also am not so big a fan of that because Jesus didn't do that to me. He didn't say, son, I love you, but I hate your sin. He didn't do that to me. You know what he did? We just took that communion and he told us what he did. He said, son, I love you. I'll bear your sin on your behalf. He loved me enough that he carried my sin away from me that I could experience the love of God. Oh, may we, the church, learn to do like Jesus. How do we come to this place where we can love the sinner to the point that his burden of sin is lifted from him and placed 
on Christ that he can experience the love of the Father truly. So I'm more for this. Love the sinner and let God deal with the sin. Let's love the sinner and let God deal with the sin. Zeal divorced from love is a destructive force. And that's why Jesus was coming strong on that church. He said, I'm going to slough you off if you don't turn. Why? Because the testimony of one who is zealous without love is a destructive testimony. Zeal divorced from love is a destructive force. I'll say these things. Truth without love stunts growth. This is the scripture, Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love that you may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. How do you grow up? You speak truth, but you must speak truth with love. Speak truth in love. You divorce love from speaking truth, you stunt a person's growth. You see that in families too. As fathers and mothers, or as grandfathers and grandmothers, or as great-grandfathers and grandmothers. When we speak truth, let's make sure it's mixed with love. It's truth spoken in love. Why? Because that's what causes growth. Truth without love stunts growth. The other thing I notice in this scripture, truth without love creates an environment of death. Listen to John. 1 John 3, 14 to 15. When I came across this scripture, I thought, oh my goodness. This is why Christ was trying to make it clear to them. Listen to 1 John 3, 14 to 15. He who does not love his brother abides in death. That's shocking, isn't it? Shocking to me. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Why? Because truth divorced from love creates a dying environment. Finally, truth without love clouds one's judgment. Philippians 1, 9-10 And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ. How do you make good judgments that make you and I excellent in the way we live our lives, that is sincere and without offense? How do you do that? Let love abound more and more. The more love abounds in you and me, the more we will have the knowledge and discernment on how to live our lives. So we looked at the commendation. We looked at the concern. Let's look at Jesus' correction. And this is his correction. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Remember? What, are you have to, what do you have to remember? Remember your first love. Remember your first love, he's saying. Remember the first love. But also, as you remember, repent and do the first works. Remember the first love. Do you remember the first time you fell in love? I don't know how old you were, 20 years old, 15 years old. <laughs> and that boy or that girl, that cute one, I was 18 years old when I first fell in love. Here's that girl sitting at the back. My wife. She was my first love. 
Then, of course, we went our own ways. And finally, I married my first love. But look at God when he speaks about first love in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. Listen to the tone of his voice. As the people in Jeremiah's days reject him, want nothing to do with him, and listen to the tone of the God of Israel. I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago, how you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. Can you hear his tone? Can you see the broken heart of a lover? I remember how you loved me. I remember how, how you eagerly wanted to please me. I see, I see a connection between eagerly pleasing God, loving God, and following God. If you pursue a life to please God, it will lead you to love God. And when you love God, it's easy to follow God. If you pursue, do a test this next week. Just please yourself. Just eagerly please yourself. Pursue to please yourself. You know what you will become? A selfish person. You will love yourself. As you pursue eagerly to please yourself, you will love yourself. Because that's what happens. But if you pursue your life, long life pursuit is to eagerly please God. It will lead you to loving Him. And when you love Him, easy to follow the one you love. Jesus said this in John 8, 29. He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. That was his life. Just look to please the Father. And because he looked to please the Father, there was this love relationship between the Father and him to the point he says, we are one. And that love relationship led him to say, I will do this that you asked me to do, Lord. I will obey. And he carried the cross for us. You seek after your own pleasures, you will love yourself. Seek to please God, you will love him. And when you love him, it is easy to follow him. Remember your first love. But not just remember. Jesus says to them, repent and do first works. What is the first work of the church? What is the first work of you and me as Christians? I am so glad you asked. Matthew chapter 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. Remember what Jesus called them? Lampstand. On a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I want to say this to you. Your first works is that you are a testimony. You are visible. People see you. People see this church, whether we like it or not. They see us. We are visible in their eyes. What kind of testimony are we to the world? What kind of testimony am I 
to the world. When they see me, what do they see? We are visible. We are a lampstand. And in a dark world, they don't need to hear. Their hearing is very good. They cannot see. And that's why Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. So repent is, change the way you think. Your lifestyle is so important because you are a testimony. You are a lampstand. Wherever you go, you are a lampstand. You are a visible testimony. Testifying of who God is. Change the way you think, but also change the way you act. Good works draws people to God. What is our call in life? Alison said it. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that? Remember your first love. And then repent. Change your mind about who you are. You are a visible lampstand. Change your mind. And change your ways. Good works. Good works will draw people to God. So let me close with this. This was the message that Jesus gave to the church in Ephesus. And I think it's a message he's giving us this morning. Zeal divorced from love is a destructive force. First love is a life pursuit to please God. You pursue pleasing God, you will end up loving God. When you end up loving God, it is so easy to follow God. First love, first works. First works is an overflow of that first love through good testimony and good works.